Welcome to the World Exposé podcast, where we delve into the past to better understand our global society through conversations with leading professors of history, political writers, international journalists, and more. Enjoy. Alex Lefebvre is an associate professor in the Department of Government and International Relations and the Department of Philosophy at the University of Sydney. We're going to be discussing the subject of his book, Human Rights and the Care of the Self, published in 2018, and his book currently in writing called Liberalism as a Way of Life. Alex, thanks a lot for joining us. Thanks for the invitation. It's a pleasure. Starting with Liberalism as a Way of Life, could you tell us about the premise of the book and what its aim is? The book came out of the following idea. So if you asked 500 years ago, if you asked anyone in the world, I mean, even 100 years ago, if you asked anyone in the world, rich, poor, Western, non-Western, where they got their values from, I think no one would have a problem pointing to some sort of source or tradition or thing from where their morality came from. So most people would have pointed naturally to a religion, other people maybe to some kind of political tradition. There might have been some crazy eccentrics who named a philosopher or two, but basically everyone knew where their values, their beliefs, their attitudes, their sensibility, all that stuff that makes you, you, where that came from. It wasn't kind of a question mark. Today, I think that if you were to ask a lot of people who aren't religious, where they get their values from, I think they would really struggle to say something. I mean, I, I sometimes cajole my students or a, or a friend and I ask them this question and I say, where do you think you get kind of your moral orientation from? And their immediate go-to answers are something like uh, my friends or my family or my experiences. And that's fine. But what I think is the only way to answer that is you have to point to something much bigger. And so I think that there's something that from where we get our morals and our values and our beliefs that we don't quite consciously realize. And what I'm trying to do in this book is write out what I think is one main source of our moral compass and our ethical self. And what I want to say is that that is liberalism. So that's my goal. I want to say liberalism is a way of life. And by that, I mean something really expansive. I mean, liberalism is not just about political institutions, not just about constitutions, not just about political stuff. And neither is it just about kind of political values, like how we might relate in the public sphere or in debate or as citizens. I want to say that for a whole lot of people who live in, let's say, liberal democracies and who don't identify as religious, that they themselves are what we might call like liberal all the way down. Like everything that makes them them is somehow traceable to some major uh, aspect of liberalism. Just let me give one quick example. And what I'm trying to do in the books, I'm trying to draw on some philosophers to make this point, but I really want to draw on a whole lot of pop culture and sort of just culture at large to make this point and to kind of hold up a mirror to my readers so that they might recognize that they themselves are uh, liberals in the way that I'm trying to describe. So the easiest way that I can get the idea of liberalism as a way of life out is through the following examples. And it's swear words. The history of swear words is a phenomenon that I'm really interested in. And the reason that is that the history, the swear words change all the time throughout the course of history. So there's this terrific book that was published a few years ago, and the title is great because it just states the whole point of the book. The title of the book is Holy Shit, The History of Swearing. And the idea is that since the dawn of Western civilization, swear words have fallen into one of two categories. You got your holy words and you got your shit words. So the holy words, which dominated, say, in biblical times, especially in the medieval periods, are all about 
sacrilegious words and, and, and calling on the Lord's name in vain, all that stuff. Your shit words were ascendant at a different point in time. So, for example, in Roman Empire or in Victorian times, it was those kinds of words were the taboo words. Now, we can say those kinds of words, no problem. I can say it on the podcast and no one's going to bat an eye. And so we tend to think that we're post swear words. But I don't think that we are. I think that our swear words have shifted and along that with our sense of what we find offensive and what we find okay. So nowadays, I think that if we were to use terms of humiliation, terms of abuse, things like homophobic slurs, racial slurs, et cetera, et cetera, all of those now tend to elicit really strong emotional reactions. And we are rightly called up and disciplined and fired and all of those sorts of things. Now, what I want to say is that even in our sense of what we find offensive, we have a liberal sensibility that is somehow in asserting itself in the idea that the kinds of things that we find offensive now are terms that violate basic liberal norms of dignity, of respect, and of equality. And that even in something kind of like as everyday as swear words, we see a liberal way of life in action. And what my book tries to do is bring that out and make it really plain to see. Can you tell us about John Rawls and how he came to be the main influence of this book? Yeah, so John Rawls is the guy in liberal political philosophy. So he taught at Harvard for around 40 years, and he wrote the greatest selling philosophy book, I think, of all time, A Theory of Justice, published in 1971, sold 400,000 copies in English, which is just mind-blowing for a book. I think its own publisher describes it as a 600-page work of uncompromising philosophy. So for that to get such uptake is extraordinary. Rawls has just been set the conversation in political philosophy for a long time. Why I think he is so interesting is because I think that he has a very strong moral sensibility in his life, that his liberalism is not just about describing rules or constitutions or certain kinds of political arrangements that people should have, but it's about living a certain way and with certain kinds of commitments and with a certain commitment to cultivate a certain conception of oneself. And why I find Rawls so very interesting is that I think some of his major concepts can be read as what I want to call in the book spiritual exercises, are kind of tools that we can pick up in our day-to-day life to try to transform ourselves in ways that we might become more liberal, which would be good for kind of our countries and, and our fellow citizens. But really, Rawls has puts a major case forward to saying why living a liberal life is sort of good and rewarding in and of itself. He doesn't say it's good for everyone. He doesn't recommend it over and above other ways of life, but he says it's got a lot of good stuff going for it. It really does its best to show its appeal. And that's what I want to try to do in in perhaps a little less abstract and way than he does. And how do you engage the readers to embrace these spiritual exercises in your book? So the idea of a spiritual exercise, I should have mentioned, is a very old and very interesting idea. So I'm drawing this from another French philosopher, a guy named Pierre Adou, who taught at the Collège de France for years in France and recently died like 10 years ago. And he wrote a lot about this idea of spiritual exercises in ancient philosophy. His basic idea is that ancient philosophy, as it was understood and practiced by ancients like Socrates, like Aristotle, like Seneca, and modern philosophy, say from the modern period, Descartes on to Kant and Nietzsche to all the figures that uh, you might have heard of, they're very, very different kinds of enterprises. Modern philosophy is all about like being original, theoretical, systematic, coming up with some new conception of the world or the universe. Being a philosopher in ancient times, totally different question. You don't have to have a single original thought 
ever in your life to be a philosopher in the ancient sense. All of being a philosopher means is that you're committed to living a certain way. The word itself means love of knowledge, philo, love, uh, sophie, knowledge. And so what this French philosopher does is he tries to reorient our understanding of ancient philosophy such that we see that it was all about trying to become and live a certain sort of way. Now, he, in ancient philosophy, according to him, are these things called spiritual exercises. And most of ancient philosophy is, in fact, comprised of these kind of daily practices that you might do in order to try to transform yourself. So, for example, every morning, the, so the, one of the Roman emperors, Marcus Aurelius, was himself a Stoic philosopher. And every morning he practiced this. So he was a busy guy, obviously. He had lots of demands, lots of petitions, lots of decisions to make. And every morning he began his routine with this exercise. He would try to think ahead as to what the day ahead would bring and all of the difficulties and all of the annoyances that would come with it. And so he could try to better anticipate them and cope with them when they would arise. He knew that he was often very prone to anger and he had to try to chill himself out in advance so that he wouldn't run away with himself. So he practiced this kind of premeditation in the morning to try to become a better, more temperate person. So the point is, is that uh, ancient philosophy is just chock full of these specific concrete practices that you can do in order to try to become a better person. Now, my hunch is, is that Rawls himself, though he doesn't seem like it, he seems like a political philosopher, very remote from these sorts of things. My hunch is that a lot of his concepts, in fact, work as those kinds of practices in which we can try to become a different sort of person. So one of his very, very famous concepts is the veil of ignorance. It's a concept drawn from the theory of justice. It's one of the kind of the, the hits of that book. And the idea is that we try to imagine what an ideal society would look like if we were to have no information as to how we ourselves would be situated within it. So I wouldn't know that I was a man. I wouldn't know that I was white. I wouldn't know X, Y, Z. I wouldn't even know what kind of things I would find good. I would just have some very basic facts about human psychology and social life. And from there, I would be able to, I would try to create a system of social cooperation that would be equal and fair and prosperous for everyone. So that's kind of what philosophers call a thought experiment. Like you think of this crazy analytic device and you put yourself into it and you're like, okay, what happens next? So that's interesting in a way. So it's a theoretical construction. But what I want to try to suggest in the book, and I think Rawls is writing slowly, is that in fact, it's a way in which he urges us to look at the world repeatedly, that we can take on this idea of the veil of ignorance at any moment to try to remind ourselves what our genuine and true intuitions are about justice, so that we don't always just kind of favor ourselves so that we don't just kind of play justice to my advantage. And that's the idea, to try to become impartial, which in our world today, I mean, I think we could use a lot more of that. Other than publishing this book, are there other ways you plan on spreading this vision? And is there anybody else working on creating the same vision of liberalism as a way of life? So today, as I said earlier, we understand liberalism primarily as a social and political ideology about rights, about constitutions, and all that fine. So liberalism is a pretty new thing. So liberalism was created in the 19th century, mainly in France and Germany and in England. And back then, though, it wasn't seen as primarily a political thing. So the word liberalism comes out of the word liberal, which means to be free. And the whole idea of liberalism was to provide the social and political conditions under which people could remain free 
and free not just in the sense that they could do whatever they wanted or they would have like liberty of choice, but free in the sense that they would be able to live their best, fullest self. And so my point is, is that there's a lot of historical work on this conception of liberalism in the 19th century, which goes back to its ethical origin. So there's one book in particular that I love. It's by a scholar in CUNY University in New York called named Helena Rosenblatt. And the book is The Lost History of Liberalism. And what she does is try to trace out the ethical vision of liberalism. Now, what I'm trying to do in a sense is complete that task, is update it for our own 21st century issues. We think today liberalism and democracy go hand in hand, like they're like this package deal and all is great. But back then, liberalism was very much positioned against democracy. So liberalism was a way in which to manage political and constitutional rule under conditions of democracy with a keen eye that we didn't want democracy to get out of control. So liberalism was always positioned against democracy. So maybe that's not our problem anymore. Maybe it is. But what I'm trying to do is renew the potential of liberalism with respect to the kind of contemporary challenges facing us, which have obviously shifted since the 19th century. You said that practically and politically speaking, liberalism is under attack worldwide, and that a key motivation for your book was a sense that liberals could do a much better job defending themselves and their creed. How do you propose for this to be done? Well, I think that we need to realize that when liberalism is under attack today, it's not just political institutions or the rule of law or judicial independence, all that stuff, however important it is, that's under threat. But something I think like a mainstay of, of our most cherished personal values, so things like tolerance, fairness, reciprocity, equality of opportunity, all of that stuff that's not just kind of political stuff is at risk if liberalism threatens to be displaced as kind of the common sense of our social and political world. So there's this old half-true saying about liberalism and liberals that liberals are people who won't take a stand even on their own cause. And I think that some of that neutrality might be a disservice today. And I think that perhaps we are at a moment when we ought to speak up for liberalism. And what my text is trying to do is provide all the reasons for why we might want to do that and trying to show that it is the kind of source of the things that matter most to us. Moving on to your 2018 book, Human Rights and the Care of the Self. What does care of the self mean and how does it connect to human rights? The book Human Rights and the Care of the Self is half a work of political theory and half a work of political history. And what I try to do in that book is show that throughout the whole history of the concept of human rights, major thinker after major thinker recommend, defend, theorize human rights, not so much as a form of law or a form of protection to help people who are vulnerable, but rather they promote human rights for a very, very surprising set of reasons, which I gather under the name of care of the self. And what I try to show in the book is that all of these very, very important thinkers writing at these crucial junctures of the tradition of human rights. So for example, I look at writers during the French Declaration of Human Rights in 1789, the American Declaration, the UN drafting of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. All of these core players are recommending human rights as, let's say, a vehicle of self-help. So that is very, very interesting and very surprising for different reasons. Today, when we think about human rights, we are governed by two fundamental assumptions. These assumptions are so basic, they're never even uttered. They're so kind of, it goes without saying. 
Assumption number one is that human rights are about protecting people. I mean, in a sense, what else would human rights do? The whole point of human rights is to set up some medium of legal recourse for citizens against their own state. So to have some sort of buffer or barrier or medium of appeal so that people aren't so exposed to their own government. So that's thing number one. Assumption number one is that human rights are there to protect people. Super basic assumption number two is that the the, the word is terrible, the object of human rights, the thing for which we have human rights for are other people and especially other vulnerable people. So for people like us in secure, rich countries, human rights have become a really championed cause and the main vehicle of social justice today because they provide a medium in which, in which vulnerable people may be helped, assisted, and given a voice. So those are the two major assumptions that govern human rights. A, they're about protecting people. B, they're about other vulnerable people. Like it's so kind of, it's like, yeah, duh, it's so obvious that's what human rights are about. Now in my book, I don't dispute that. That's super important. But what I'm trying to show is that there's this whole other fascinating trajectory of human rights that totally has gone missed or unacknowledged in the tradition. And that's this idea of thinker after thinker recommending human rights to care for the self. Uh, that's my word for it in different respects. So in this sense then, Human rights isn't about protection, it's about transformation, and in particular, personal transformation. It's a way in which to work upon and improve yourself. Second, the object of human rights, and this is a very surprising, very counterintuitive, and for some readers, very offensive idea that human rights aren't about other people, victims, vulnerable people, that all of these right thinkers are in fact recommending human rights because it helps them and people like them. And so that's just a very different way in which to theorize human rights. Now, my book isn't a critical book in a sense. I'm not trying to debunk or, or show that human rights are illusory or, or, or that they're, um, they're ideological or deceptive or anything like that. What I'm trying to show is a whole other set of reasons why we might want to care about human rights and why we might want to fight for and advocate them, just coming at it from a totally different perspective. You said that care of the self is an ethic that prioritizes personal transformation and self-fashioning. It remains non-prescriptive and allows for individuals to voluntarily adapt a moral code to cultivate the self as a self-sufficient moral end. How does your book teach people to adopt this moral code? This is a great question. Um, very difficult one. So the idea of care of the self is, again, it's back to the ancient Greek world, but this time with a different French philosopher than the one I mentioned before. So earlier with this guy, Pierre Hadou. Now with this other guy, uh, Michel Foucault. And in his, Foucault is one of the great historians and philosophers of the 20th century. And in his later work, he started to look at the Greeks for a different conception of morality and subjectivity that he found very, very interesting. And the Greeks sort of use this term, but he really systematizes it into the idea of care of the self. In French, uh, le souci de soi, a concern or care or attention to oneself. And so what Foucault wants to do is contrast ancient morality, which from modern morality, and he says that ancient morality is very, very interesting and unique because it's about transforming the self. It's about uh, attending to oneself. Foucault is very, very insistent, and it's very important for my own book, that care of the self isn't seen as merely preparatory care for others. It's not like you work on yourself first so that then you can care for other people better. You can do that. That's fine. But the idea in the Greek world was that you care for yourself to care for yourself, that the self is a self-sufficient moral end. Like You don't need an extra justification. In Christianity, that comes under total suspicion. It looks it smacks of pride, it smacks of egoism, and it smacks of sin. But before Christianity, it was a very different picture, and caring for oneself was okay. 
And so what then I try to look at in these different human rights thinkers is all the different and very interesting reasons that they suggest to care for the self. My, my book is very complicated, but my book is super simple. My book does one move over and over again, and I think it's an interesting and effective move. It looks at an individual thinker, and then it does two things. It says, it looks at the thinker and tries to identify what that thinker thinks has gone horribly wrong in their world. And in particular, what has gone horribly wrong with the sense that there's a certain sickness, a certain spiritual sickness or badness in their world that hurts the minds, the psyches, the soul, whatever word you want to use of the people in it. Like there's something that really fucks this up and makes us unhappy and miserable. So that's step one, it's to diagnose what messes us up. Step two is then each of them for different reasons, but fascinatingly all of them, turn to human rights as a tool that you can use to fight that first bad thing. So the clearest example that I had, I mean, they're all very clear because I think they're all very immediately understandable, humane sorts of problems. But the, the one that always is so clear to me is Wollstonecraft. So Mary Wollstonecraft is a, an English author who wrote at the turn of the 19th century. And she wrote uh, the first feminist track in British philosophy, um, Vindication of the Rights of Women. And that book is fascinating because it's an indictment of patriarchy. She criticizes the sexism of her day. Now, it's very interesting why she criticizes the sexism of her day. In a sense, obviously, it's because it's unjust, it's cruel, it's violent. There's all sorts of very obvious reasons why she attacks it. But really what she does, and I think this is an extraordinarily powerful critique, she does an internal takedown of it, by which I mean that she examines the values of what she calls chivalry, which is the form of patriarchy in her day. And she looks at all the women around her that lead their lives by chivalry and have fully taken on board the ideals of their time. So women who prioritize their own beauty and who uh, emphasize virtues such as modesty, chastity, littleness, fragility, frailty, all of that stuff. And what Wilson Craft does is she says to her audience, ladies, if you live your life according to these virtues, your life is going to be a train wreck. It's going to be an absolute catastrophe. You may have some happy flashes and moments here and there, but overall, these are just bound to lead to depression, to psychical destruction. So that's the one hand argument. Her next argument is, is that, okay, how do we fix this? And the major argument that she has is we have, women have to start looking at themselves in a different way. They have to start seeing themselves as equal, not just because they are equal, sure, but because only that first step to see oneself as equal and also in her, her language to see oneself as free, only that will women start to slowly work themselves out of their own emotional attachment to chivalry. And so what she suggests, here's where human rights comes in. She suggests over and over that the women of her time should start looking at themselves as if they were the subjects of human rights. So the subject of human right is famously stated to be one who is free, one who is equal, one who exists in fraternity and friendship with those around him. And she's saying to her female audience, she's saying, this is how we ought to regard ourselves. Not only because it's just and not only because women have dignity or are entitled to equal respect, all that is true. But her major argument is that reason why we have to look at ourselves as these figures of human rights is to take better care of ourselves because the mode of culture on offer in our society is a nightmare for us. And we have to try to find a way to get out of it. So human rights then become a very clear and very direct tool or a technique to work on and transform the self in light of a particular problem. So why care for the self? Each of my thinkers that I look at has an 
extraordinarily direct reason. And that reason is always like, because what's in your world is making you unhappy and this will help put you on a better track. Could you maybe just touch on the lessons by Tocqueville in terms of dealing with individualism? Yeah, sure. That'd be cool. So I, I do this kind of um, hit parade of different thinkers. So Wollstonecraft is my first. Next stop is Tocqueville. So Tocqueville wrote 40 years after Wollstonecraft. Didn't make any reference to her, really. But I think he had a very similar idea. So he was writing about the American Revolution. So he famously went on a trip when he was in his early 20s to America with his buddy. They had a great time. He wrote kind of a half political philosophy, half travel log of it called Democracy in America. And it's the first great diagnosis. It's the first time democracy is ever written up as the primary subject of political theory. That's extraordinary, but that's when it was, um, early 19th century. And what in particular that book is genius at doing is identifying all the different ways that the new social force that he calls democracy works on our desires, on our emotions, on our subjectivity, and our understanding of self. And one of the main things that he talks about is democracy does two bad things to our souls, according to Tuckville. One, it draws us towards individualism. This is a strange idea, but the idea is that democracy incentivizes us to withdraw from public life, to just basically take care of our own private concerns, to care about our friends and family, but not much else. And the other problem that he talks about is democracy inclines us towards what he calls materialism, and that we kind of seek all our pleasures in these little material gratifications, like getting a new phone, having a glass of scotch every night, like that kind of stuff, like just like little pleasures every night. And he thinks both are not just ignoble ways to live, but both are present certain kinds of distinctive unhappinesses. Individualism is an interesting case because he thinks that the real worry about individualism is that it will slowly lead to what he calls egoism, which is essentially selfishness. And selfishness is bad, not merely because it's immoral, but because again, it is immiserating. It, you always and only have your own concerns in your head and you'll be only revolving around your own self-interest. And it's just a very limited, blinkered way to live. So the reason why I took the like human, he doesn't use the term human rights, he uses the term civil and political rights, especially. But America in this time is developing this idea of universal civil and political rights extended, of course, you have to understand only to white males at the time. But that's universal enough for not universal enough. That's what's called universal in that day. And his idea is, is that Americans are especially happy kinds of creatures because they make such extensive use of their political rights. And why does that make them happy? Precisely because it gets them into political life, because it gets them into participating into collective affairs and collective concerns. And that is so good spiritually for Tuckville because it gets people to get out of their own freaking heads to put aside their self-interest for a moment and start to conceive of wider, broader interests. And that is nice relief from the psychic kind of hamster wheel of democracy and where it always leads us back to think only about ourselves. He wants us to get out of our heads for our own sake. Human rights are the way for him to do that. So that is one of the ways in which care of the self can bring about a political transformation. Yeah, that's right. So all of the authors that I look at in that text identify a problem that and this is the this is the trick, and this is what's so interesting and so kind of devastating about their critiques. All of the authors in that text, so I look at Wollstonecraft, at Tocqueville, at uh, Henri Bergson, a French philosopher, at Eleanor Roosevelt, the American first lady, but then she was one of the great champions of human rights. She was the chairperson of the committee that wrote the Universal Declaration. So anyway, so I go through all these thinkers, and each of them identify a problem that plagues the, the life and mind of people in their times. But here's the kicker, is that 
people in their time are all attracted to their problem. Women see themselves in the image of patriarchy for Wollstonecraft. Democrats are inclined towards individualism because it's just the best way to live, according to them. For Roosevelt, people are conformists, like the, she has this mind that Americans living like that, like they're always chasing the Joneses, trying to always keep up with their neighbor, never speaking out, being the same. And in each case, they're championing human rights as a way to overcome those problems. But what makes that so very compelling and interesting is that, let me put it this way, Foucault said something very profound in his works on care of the self. He said that resistance to power always has to take a form of resistance to oneself because at the end of the day, power is anchored in our desires. We're not masochists. We don't want the things that oppress us, but the kinds of patterns and practices and desires that we are enmeshed in end up contributing to a certain kind of mindset and orientation that will consolidate the powers that be. And so what each of my authors do is they urge people to try to challenge that power that be in their head as good for themselves and also as a first step towards wider transformation. So Wilson Craft knows full well that overthrowing patriarchy won't work if women aren't on board and women won't be on board unless they start to realize that the current game that they're invested in is terrible for them. And so in each case, they're caring for themselves, but in each case, that means engendering a certain resistance and a certain spirit of criticism towards the major social and political powers of their day. So it's a kind of a two for one. You, you care for yourself in order to care for yourself, but that always takes the form of resistance to a dominant power. Regarding refugees, you stated that if any figure in the world should be able to call upon their human rights, it is the refugee. Yet, at the very same time, it is precisely the refugee who is prevented from doing so. How did this become the norm in human rights? So that is a very powerful insight reached by one of the great political philosophers of the 20th century, Hannah Arendt, who wrote that in her book, Origins of Totalitarianism, in her very scathing diagnosis of human rights. So she's commenting in the very early 1950s, but she's talking about just before the Second World War. And she's talking about a condition where human rights were merely kind of announced, but they weren't protected by any, there was no UN at this time, there was no uh, NGOs, there was nothing monitoring human rights. And so what the whole idea of human rights worked back then is that there weren't any kind of institutions of human rights, but it was hoped and assumed that each national government would itself codify and ensure the human rights of its citizens. And so what Arendt observes back then is the refugee crisis uh, represents sort of the collapse and the sham of the current human rights practice that reigned at the time. And the idea is, is that if a refugee is expelled from their community, from their political community, that's what a refugee is. And if their political community is the thing that should be guaranteeing their human rights, then by virtue of being expelled from their political community, they're also expelled from their human rights. Hence, you get that cruel, nasty idea that's perfectly true of Arendt saying that human, her formula is just devastating, human rights. You have them when you don't need them. So if you're in a political community, you have human rights, but who cares because you're in a political community, so great. And human rights, you don't have them when you need them, namely when you're expelled from a political community, you're trying to call on your human rights because what else are you going to do? But precisely because you're expelled from community, you have nothing to draw on at that point. So the human rights in her time are a discourse that's kind of a cruel joke, a vicious tautology of, that are never there when you want it. Henry Bergson, one of the main influences of your book, was a fascinating character. 
France assigned Bergson to strike up a personal relationship with President Woodrow Wilson in order to persuade the United States to enter the First World War. Could you tell us more about this and why you think that he was a chosen person for this huge undertaking? Sure, yeah. Uh, my other life is that I'm a specialist of Henri Bergson, who's, who was the great philosopher of the early 20th century and really a real rock star as far as it goes. I mean, he dominated the French scene like it's never been done, not South and Foucault were, were nothing compared uh, to his fame at the height. Uh, he caused the first traffic jam in New York when he lectured. His lectures at the Collège de France were constantly sold out, but sold out because the bourgeoisie, the, the really rich people of Paris, would all send their valets to go take the lecture seats before the students could. So the students were very frustrated, circulated a petition to ban the, to ban the valets, didn't work. Anyway, but he was a very, very famous uh, philosopher. He also spoke impeccable English. His mother was Welsh, so he could speak fully bilingually in English and French. So by the time the First World War, he was retired. He had arthritis. He had to retire from his chair in philosophy. So during the First World War, when things were going very badly for France, France decided to take a gamble and send him on a secret mission as an emissary to the United States in order to speak to the president, Woodrow Wilson, personally, and to try to get the United States involved in the First World War. The idea being is that Woodrow Wilson himself, Woodrow Wilson conceived of himself as something like a philosopher king. He had this image of himself as that kind of historical figure. And so sending Bergson to go talk to him was really playing on his vanity and his pride in a very good, very strategic and savvy, canny kind of way. Because Bergson was able then, as the eminent philosopher of the world, to reflect Wilson's own self-image back to him and lead him slowly to realize that this was a world historic event, that history was on his side, that it was the right moral, spiritual thing to do. And Bergson, a mere philosopher, was actually central in a world historical event, the introduction of the United States into the First World War. And after that, he was one of the founding members of the League of Nations. He was chairman of its first, of especially the forerunner to UNESCO, and uh, organized intellectual debates between different uh, countries. Regarding Henry Bergson, you said in a nutshell, he says that human rights teaches human beings how to love. For him, the purpose of human rights is to initiate human beings into a kind of love that is open, universal, and unalloyed with exclusion or hatred. How do you think he formulated this main idea? What attracted me to human rights was Bergson's very zany idea about human rights, which I thought was very odd, but very intriguingly odd. And so he's where I got this whole idea of human rights in the care of the self. So in 2013, I published a book called, a very similar title, but it was just a study on Bergson called Human Rights as a Way of Life on Bergson's Political Philosophy. And there I traced out this really crazy idea that he had. And he says that, he doesn't say so directly, you have to kind of piece it together through the various fragments in his later work, his political work. But he says something to the effect that the main benefit uh, or gift of human rights to the world is that they help initiate people into a different kind of love. It's a very crazy idea. Human rights teach us to love in a new way. So it's a very Christian idea. It's drawing on the notion of Christian agapic love. Uh, But in a nutshell, the idea is is that naturally, as it were, and Bergson was an interestingly a sociobiologist. So when I say naturally, I mean that quite literally. Naturally, Bergson says, when we love, we always love 
at the exclusion of someone. So I love my country, not as opposed to, but in contrast or in distinction to other countries. I like, I love my wife as opposed to other women. I love my daughter because she's my daughter. And so our normal way of loving is always tied up with a preference. I love this person because X, Y, Z and exclusion. I love this person, not that person. And so love then is always in its standard natural operation is always exclusive. We think of love as this warm, fuzzy thing, but love is a, can be, in its ordinary meaning, a divisive concept. It separates things that are beloved from things that are not beloved. Those things that are not loved can be neutral, but they can also be abject and contemptible, things that are hated. And so this is an ancient Christian idea, right? The idea is grace, right? That human beings can't love each other in the right way without being aided by God or by the example of Jesus. And Jesus teaches us to love our neighbor and teaches us to overcome our preferential love so that we no longer love this neighbor, we love the neighbor as we love ourselves. Now, Bergson's idea is, is that all religion anywhere since the beginning of time, any true religion boils down to the idea of basically love thy neighbor as thyself. It just gets different actualizations or manifestations at different moments in time. Judaism for him, despite what philosophers say, has moments of that, that idea of love. Christianity obviously has it, but he thinks Buddhism, Indian philosophies, they all have it. But what he thinks is that human rights are just the latest manifestation of universal love. It's not a gospel anymore. It's not a religious text. It's instead love as manifested through a political and legal institution. But we should never lose sight of what inspires that legal and political institution, which is the experience of love. And only the experience of love could have ever conceived of an institution that would protect all human beings equally. Only with the intuition of love would it make sense to have a non-exclusive form of law. And so what Bergson is saying, and this is why it's so weird and crazy and interesting, is that by acquainting ourselves, by contact, by, by knowledge of human rights, knowledge not in its cognitive sense, but like by proximity, I don't know what, the idea is that we start to intuit the emotion, the love behind it, and that will lead us to a new kind of emotional capacity that we wouldn't have reached on our own. It inspires us to something we couldn't have done just on our own resources. Alex, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. Uh, my pleasure. I hope we all adopt liberalism now as a way of life. And yeah, please. Uh, that, yeah, that would, that would be terrific. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you liked it, tell your friends about it and maybe give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. See you next week.